Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Therefore, faithful Christian, seek the truth. Listen to the truth. Learn the truth. Love the truth. Speak the truth. Adhere to truth. And defend truth to the death. These words might seem like a platitude or a cliche if not for the fact that they were spoken by a man who did defend the truth even unto death. On July the 6th, 1415, the Bohemian preacher John Huss was bound to a stake. Kindling was set around him. He was threatened with burning for heresy. He was holding to what he believed to be true. The Roman Catholic Church commanded him to renounce it. And there at the stake, he was given one final chance. The marshal told him if he would recant there, the fire would never touch his skin. And so, John Huss had a decision to make. He had come to a moment that we may imagine for ourselves, imagine having to die for the truth. He, in his earlier years, may never have imagined coming to this point, but there he was. There he found himself. And now he only had the decision either to spare his own life or to hold fast to the truth and die a painful death. And there at the stake he made his decision. In the truth of the gospel, he answered, I have written, taught, and preached. Today I will gladly die. Is the truth worth dying for? In the Reformation that would shortly follow John Huss's life, there was a great influencer, a Dutch scholar, the most prominent scholar in all of Europe, at that time, his name was Erasmus of Rotterdam. He will prove to be a significant influence on almost every single one of the reformers. But Erasmus did not believe the truth worth dying for. Or maybe more accurately, he didn't think that we could know the truth with enough certainty, at least on most issues, to die for that truth. Because of this view, Erasmus was well-respected as a scholar. He was well-received. He dined well. He lived well. He traveled about Europe with a good reputation for the most part. And most importantly, Erasmus did not die at the stake. He did not think the truth worth dying for. The question that confronts us is, who is right? John Huss or Erasmus? Is the truth worth even dying for. Now you and I may never be affixed to a stake, and we hope we are not, but still we all have to answer that question in the quiet of our own minds. Because the way that you answer that question right now in your mind, would you die in order to hold fast to the truth? You may never have to prove the answer to that question in this world. You may never be faced with a stake in kindling. But the way that you answer that question will impact the thousand decisions that you make every day. If you are willing to die for the truth, then you will live for the truth. And if you are not willing to die for the truth, you may not live that way. I know, said Huss, 
that the truth stands and is mighty forever. So has lived for the truth and therefore also he died for the truth. And as we're going to see today, the fire of his funeral pyre there never really went out. There were embers that moved from that fire as the Roman Catholic Church attempted to stomp out those embers, the life of Huss and his message. But that truth spread from that fire and first caught in Bohemia, his home country, caught that nation ablaze and from there spread to the rest of Europe in varying ways. This morning we are beholding this man of truth, John Huss. He is our second pre-reformer before the official reformation the 16th century and we are praying that some of those embers from the place where he was burnt might by God's grace enter into our own hearts and ignite in us a similar courage for the truth as it ignited in him. So let's get right into the life of John Huss. Who was this man? John Huss was born in southern Bohemia Bohemia is the approximate equivalent of modern-day Czech Republic. The language he spoke was Czech. He was born probably around 1372. We're not certain about that. There in southern Bohemia, in Czech, his last name, we have, in English we say Hus. In Czech it was Hus, Jan Hus. And Hus in Czech means goose. So this was a goose. And... John Huss and his followers noted that very often. In fact, one of the most famous legends about John Huss may not be true, but it's said that as perhaps even as he was about to die, he said to those killing him, you may cook this goose, Hus, but in 100 years a swan will arise whom you will have to endure. Martin Luther believe that was in reference to himself. He quoted it in reference to himself, whether it was true or not. For a hundred years after his burning in 1415, just shortly after that, really 102 years, in 1517, the 95 Theses are nailed to the church door there in Wittenberg. But Goosey was. Uh, even to this day, if you go back and you look at pictures of Martin Luther in Lutheranism, you'll often find a swan portrayed as a symbol of Luther because of this uh, legendary quote. Unfortunately, a goose is a much less attractive bird and it never caught on as a symbol for John Huss. But Goosey was. And was born in Husenets, Goose Town, Southern Bohemia, 1372. Now, as with John Wycliffe, at this stage of history, we don't have a lot of records about Huss's childhood, just same as Wycliffe. But there are two things I want to point out as we get into the story of his life that come from his childhood in the culture around him. And the first is this, 1372, I just want to remind you that, where does that put Wycliffe at this time? Wycliffe over in England in 1372 had just become a doctor of theology at Oxford. So that's what's happening when Huss is born. Huss will never meet Wycliffe, but Wycliffe will be the, besides Christ, single most influential figure in John Huss's life. So that's first. Secondly, also by way of introduction, when Huss was about six years old is when the great schism occurred in the papacy. If you remember from last week, that's when there were now not one but two popes, one in Italy and one in France, contesting the name of Pope. 
They both claimed to be Pope and excommunicated each other. That happened when Huss was six years old and would be very important for his life and for his death. So with that background, let's join our protagonist now, Jan Hus, John Huss. And again, just as we did with Wycliffe, we're, we're joining him as he's entering the university. Now, Wycliffe, you remember, is born in the northern part of England and he travels south to Oxford. John Huss is born in the southern part of Bohemia and he travels north to the University of Prague in the capital city of Bohemia. This had become an incredibly important university. He comes in as a student and as with Wycliffe, and any medieval students. He studies the trivium. He studies the quadrivium, typical studies of that day. Now, as a student, there are a few things we know about Huss. One, we know that he was very devoted as a Catholic, and he was very devoted as a student. In fact, he was not as brilliant as Wycliffe. His um, later claims to fame have less to do with the academic rigor, such as it was with Wycliffe, when it comes to formulations of reform. But he worked very hard. Not as brilliant as Wycliffe, but in fact he studied so hard as a student that he hurt his health. We don't know what that was, but he was diligent. He was also very poor as a student, which often goes with studenthood, as you know. He tells one story later in life when, as a student, he would make a spoon out of bread and use it to eat his peas, and then he would eat the spoon. <laughs> so he was a very poor student, not unusual in those days as in these. But the one thing that really stood out in later life when he was reflecting on his student years was his own levity and pride. Here he was, devoted to Catholicism, but in practice, rather nominal. He had a levity when it came to religion. He didn't take it very seriously. He talks about, remorsefully, his addiction to the game of chess and how he would get in fights with others over this game that in later life he realized was just a silly thing, probably modern equivalent of video games. So he saw himself as just a typical student, not taking things very seriously, playing a lot of chess, very poor. And in fact, Huss decided early on that he was going to pursue becoming a priest, but not because he took God very seriously. Instead, it was because in that day, he knew if he became a priest, he would get a relatively nice lifestyle and he would be well respected. He says later in life, that's why he decided to study to become a priest. So here he is at the University of Prague as a student. He gets in, 19, in 1394, the end of the 1300s he's studying. He gets his bachelor's degree. Two years later, he becomes a master of arts, same as Wycliffe did. Never becomes a doctor in the same way Wycliffe did though. But three years later, 1401, he becomes the dean of the Department of Philosophy, overseeing the teachers of philosophy in the university. And 1401 is where we want to slow down now, so we've moved through his early life, because 1401 proved to be one of the most important years of Huss's life. And that's for two reasons, because in 1401, two of the most important roles that Huss will fill both commence. First, it's in 1401, as I've said, that Huss is appointed the dean of the philosophy department at the University of Prague. One of Huss's important roles, like Wycliffe, was in academia. 
He was a professor. He's a professor of philosophy. Those are the things he was thinking about. But 1401 is especially important because as a student, Huss had already encountered this Englishman, John Wycliffe. Because Wycliffe, you remember, was a brilliant scholar and professor. His writings had become known in Bohemia. So as a student studying philosophy, Huss had already studied the philosophy of John Wycliffe. But it wasn't until 1401 that the theological writings of John Wycliffe made their way to the University of Prague. So in 1401, we assume, is when John Huss first encounters not the philosophy, but the theology of John Wycliffe. This will be a turning point in John Huss's life. And this is why. Probably already at this point, Huss has, from his student years, experienced a change of heart. We don't know a lot about it. But he's experienced a change of heart, what we would call a rebirth. Now he's not a nominal Catholic student, etc., still committed to the church, but now he sees, regrets what he was, repents of that, trusts in Christ, and is, at this point, it seems almost certainly, a true believer. But when he looks at the world around him, he sees that the church is corrupt. He knew this from his own experience. What were his own motives before he knew Christ for becoming a part of the church? It was for advancement. It was for financial reasons. So now he's been changed, but as he looks out in the city of Prague and sees the many, many churches and the many priests overseeing them, he sees the same evil motives in them and worse. He sees a great amount of corruption. He sees people living really to fill their pockets and using spiritual things to accomplish that. He sees a broad range of sexual immorality being committed rather openly in the city by the priests, which was common in Prague, but it was common across the empire. He looks up the hierarchy to the church higher up, where you would expect to find a greater purity, but there he finds no greater purity in the pope, or at this point, the popes he finds a corruption as well. And he thinks, no doubt, was this really what God intended for the church to be? Something that, as an institution, is no better behaved than the Muslims who are threatening our, our East, and is no better behaved than the secular rulers who are vying for power with the church. And Huss is struck with this and thinks this cannot be right. And so, in 1401, when he encounters the writings of John Wycliffe, it's not that he encounters something entirely new, but he finds these same frustrations set down clearly and elucidated and answers offered to them. He finds in Wycliffe a kindred spirit, as it were. He says very clearly later in life, because he'll be accused of just being a disciple of Wycliffe later, because he held to so many of his teachings. But he was very clear that what really drew him to Wycliffe was not any peculiarity about Wycliffe himself. What drew John Huss to Wycliffe and his writings, especially theological, was Huss's love for the truth. Huss was convinced that there was a great truth which was being intentionally concealed by the church that the people, the world, needed to know. Wycliffe made those same arguments in a very compelling way. So I Huss could say, I admit, I adhere to the true opinions taught by that professor of sacred theology, Master John Wycliffe, not because he taught them, but on account of the fact that scripture or sound reason declares its veracity, its truthfulness. 
On another occasion, he put it this way, whatever truth Wycliffe taught, I receive not because it's the truth of Wycliffe, but because it is the truth of Christ. So when Huss now is reading the theological works of Wycliffe and he encounters this idea that the institutional visible church so full of corruption is not the true church of God, that the true church in its purest sense consists, as Wycliffe argued, of those who have truly believed in Jesus Christ and however this was formulated at that point, experienced an inner change and lived moral, upright lives because the love of Christ compelled them. The true church was not the institution full of corrupt priests using others to accomplish evil worldly ends, but those sheep scattered among the institution who truly loved Christ. And when Huss read that, he said, yes, That makes sense. That's what the church is. Christ did not come to the earth to build this now corrupt political institution. Christ came to the earth to redeem for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. That appealed to the truth-loving John Huss. So in 1401, that's when those theological writings of Wycliffe reached the University of Prague and so reach our friend John Huss as he's becoming the dean, the head of the philosophical department there. So as I said before, that's 1401 marks the beginning of one important part, role of his life, which is leadership in academia and the university there, but it marks another even more important role, the most important role that John Huss filled and that he's remembered for today, not as a professor of philosophy, he's remembered as a preacher of the gospel. And this is because in 1401, he was ordained as a priest, and the next year, he was appointed what we call the rector, just means the head, and the preacher of a church called Bethlehem Chapel, which was in Prague. This is what Huss is known for. He's preaching in Bethlehem Chapel. So if Wycliffe, we might consider the brain of the pre-Reformation, we would consider John Huss to be the voice of the pre-Reformation. Huss is never going to be, as I said, quite as smart as Dr. Wycliffe, quite as compelling in his written arguments, but he is a greater preacher. And this is what he's remembered for. Now, if we ask, why is he remembered as a preacher? At that time in Prague, there were many priests preaching throughout the city. Many, many priests. So what was it about John Huss that made his message so compelling so that we're still talking about him to this day? There are a few things that made him the compelling voice that he was. Here's the first one. It's that Huss, following in the trail of Wycliffe, believed that the truth of God should not be kept only in the church hierarchy, but should be unleashed to the people, those who could not speak Latin, those who did not understand the education of the higher-ups, to us, the common people, that we ought to have access as well to the truth of God. And therefore, in Bethlehem Chapel, he became one of only two places in all of Prague that preached in the language of the people. He preached in Czech. That was why, in fact, Bethlehem Chapel had been established in the first place, to promote preaching in the Czech language. He was so adamant that the people, the common people, understand the truth of God that he took 
passages of scripture, either he or someone else, took passages of scripture and some helpful illustrations and he had them placed along the walls of the chapel. And he said, if you don't want to listen to me, come and learn the truth just by looking at the walls. In Latin and in Czech as well, importantly. So that made his preaching powerful because it unlocked the word of God. And where the word of God is unlocked and brought before God's people, power, the power of God follows. A second reason that Huss was such a powerful preacher was because he was a godly man. We may think of this as a sort of minimum requirement for preachers, pastors today, but in the 15th century, it was not. If you went throughout the city of Prague and picked any random chapel or church, and you went in there to hear the preaching and then to see the life of the priest, more likely than not, you would see a man who was very evil, corrupt, self-seeking, a businessman more than a priest, perhaps uneducated or ignorant, probably having sexual relationships with people, even though he's taken a vow of celibacy. That was expected. That was the normal. So if you somehow stumbled into Bethlehem Chapel and you came across this man, John Huss, it would be like receiving a cup of cold water. It would be like coming out of the filth of the sewer into the first and only clean, pristine floors cleaned, walls cleaned sort of place you found in the city. This was a morally pure place in terms of its preacher, John Huss. And we know this in part because John Huss will make a lot of enemies, and as was common in that day, many people will make up a lot of things about Huss to get him condemned. They will make up that he taught all sorts of heresies that he never taught. But the one thing that they never make up about Huss which they're happy to do with pretty much every other reformer, is nobody on record makes up any slanderous report of an evil activity or evil in the life or in the character of John Huss. And we assume that's because the people would not have believed that slander because this was a man who was above reproach. So when you take him and you set him in contrast to the city, and then you come into the chapel and you listen to the main thrusts of his message in favor of the truth of Christ, but also strongly against the corruption of the church, the force of his life stood behind that. Because here was a man, unlike so many of the priests, who was pure, who was sincere, who was honest, who loved the truth in truth. So imagine that you come into Bethlehem Chapel and you sit down or you stand there, I don't know, they sat, and you're listening to this preaching and you would hear things like this from a few different messages. Imagine the booming voice of Huss in the city of Prague. The voice of some of the spiritual ones is like the devil and they congratulate themselves for it, being immoral and opposed to preaching in the chapel. Egotistical preachers cry in high voices like wolves. These priests are parasites whose work amounts to nothing in the church. They are money misers and have become fat pigs. They are drunks whose stomachs growl with great drinking. They are gluttons whose stomachs are so engorged, their double chins hang down. <laughs> There's John Huss. So are you saying that he was not an advocate of... Yeah, he was not very sensitive in... Um, it's not... 
does sound like Luther. Not winning friends and influencing people, the Dan's comment there. Huss preaches this way because he could not bear the truth of God to be maligned not only across Europe but in his beloved home of Bohemia and in Prague. He was like Lot with his soul provoked every day seeing the evil abuses. And so he brought about this great powerful force. Uh, he stepped into a reform movement already happening, but he led it and carried it along because he was preaching in the language that the people could understand, bringing them the truth of God. He himself was living an upright moral life above reproach, and he was calling out with no sensitivity, with very little sensitivity and clarity, the corruption that everyone already knew about, but were unwilling to speak about in these terms because of the danger. And this combination in his preaching could not help but stir up the city. And stir up the city is exactly what it did. No doubt, stirred some up to love and good deeds. But it stirred others up to hatred and ire and evil scheming. And this brings us to the next season of John Huss's life, which is the season of controversy and ultimately of condemnation. Now, this is the most important season of John Huss's life. Even though it's going to terminate in him being burnt and his message being attempted to be squashed by the church, it's going to be the worst season of his life for him, of course, but it's going to be the season that ensures that his message is not lost. If he were not burnt at the stake for his hold to the truth, we may not be talking about him today. Now, to Dan's point again, referring to winning friends and influencing people, you cannot take a stick and smack a beehive repeatedly and expect no repercussions. And John Huss was a man with a stick smacking a beehive. So, as you might imagine, the priests of Prague were not pleased with this preacher and the whole movement he represented. There were more than 40 priests, leaders of churches and chapels in this city of Prague, who were opposed to Huss and what he was doing. Huss did not care. He kept preaching just as strongly, and that's something we'll see throughout his life. He really didn't care how this was affecting his opponents because he was trying to expose them so the people could have the truth. He did not take up his office to win friends but to proclaim the truth of Christ, come what may. And it's in this season that we see what came. Around the year 1407, things start to turn. He's already experiencing opposition, but in 1407, three friends and supporters of John Huss sour against him. The first one, very importantly, is the Archbishop of Prague. This is the person who is over all the leaders, all the church in Prague. His name is Zbigniew, Archbishop Zbigniew. And for many years since his appointment, he had been a supporter of John Huss, had appointed John Huss to be a part of synods and so forth, had sort of respected his opinion and the reform movement in Prague. But around 1407, mainly for political reasons, that all changed. Zbigniew turns against Huss and the reform movement. One thing Zbigniew does is he sends two of Huss's other supporters in the year 1407 to Rome for trial. These two were Stanislav, he's the first, 
He was a teacher of John Huss, who no doubt had a significant influence. Stanislav, it seems, was a, if not the leader of the reform movement calling for change in the church. In Prague, he is sent by Zbigniew to Rome to answer for his teachings. The same thing happens to a man named Stephen Pallitz. Stephen Pallitz, another friend and supporter of John Huss, along with Stanislav, his former teacher, these two, in one sense, had been even more zealous reformers than John Huss because they were arguing, in a way that Huss was not arguing, against even transubstantiation, which was something John Wycliffe had argued. Huss was not willing to take that argument that transubstantiation was false, but Stanislav, his former teacher, and his friend Stephen Pallitz both did. But the amazing thing is when Zbigniew sends them off to Rome for trial, when they return, whatever happened there transformed them entirely. They went from being great supporters of Huss, no doubt an encouragement to him, to becoming two of his most bitter enemies. Right as Zbigniew himself was turning to become a bitter enemy of Huss. These three supports were knocked from under Huss. Stanislav later said of Huss and those with him, they were infidels, perfidious, <laughs> which I assume is not a compliment, insane and cursed clerics. And Pallets, who was a priest who preached in Prague as well, made it a campaign to discredit Huss, even up to the end of Huss's life. So here are these three friends or supporters, Binyek, Stanislav, and Pallets, all turn against Huss. And do you know what Huss does in response? He keeps preaching because that's what he was called to do. doesn't faze him. 1409, Huss is not just now dean, but amid controversy, he becomes actually the rector or the head of the whole university of Prague, a very important position. But as I said, it's amidst controversy. And so his popularity among the Czechs is somewhat high, depending on who you're talking to. The Germans, who were prominent in the university, do not like what's happened there, and they do not like him. Opposition is mounting, and all of this leads to 1410, when everything comes to a head, because in 1410, the Pope, one of the Popes, sorry, one of the Popes orders Zbigniew, Archbishop of the city, to burn heretical books, i.e. the books of John Wycliffe, Huss's hero. And, secondly, to forbid any unauthorized preaching in a chapel. This was obviously aimed at Huss who preached in a chapel. This was to silence him. So do you know what John Huss did in response? He kept preaching. He didn't listen. He kept preaching. He wouldn't be phased. He argued about the book burning, of course, but he just kept preaching. So he summoned to come to Rome by the Pope to answer for himself. And you know what he does? He just keeps preaching. He refuses to go. He knows it's a trap. So the king of Bohemia, who had been also a supporter of Huss and the reform movement, himself sours against John Huss because Huss argues against indulgences, which we'll return to in the life of Martin Luther. So the king's against him. And you know what Huss does? He keeps preaching. He keeps preaching the truth through every season, every opposition. Over the next two years, he's excommunicated four separate times. And he keeps preaching. 
Now, finally, the church had a sort of trump card, and that was they placed the city of Prague under interdict. This was a sort of political manipulation. Basically, it said if the city or a nation is not doing something the Pope or the church would like, they'll place it under interdict, and that means the mass, which was in that day considered a part of your salvation, along with Christian burial and baptism, these things were forbidden in the city. The church removed the means of grace, basically. So your salvation is jeopardized. Now the uproar obviously is enough at that point that Huss, although he wished to keep preaching and regretted it later, he left the city. And just like John Wycliffe is hero, he goes into a sort of exile. Now, 14, 13, and 14, when he's in exile, he's also just like John Wycliffe because these are the years that he produces the most powerful and important of all of his writings against the church as he's cut off from his home, from his city, and from Bethlehem Chapel. So very important. But this, of course, leads us now to the, the end of the end. 1413 and 1414, he's riding in exile, cut off from his beloved Prague. But it gets around the year 1414, and John Huss is again, either again or it's ongoing, a summons to come to Rome. Now this time, there was going to be a council. It was the Council of Constance that we mentioned last week, and I think you had asked, it was in Germany. Council of Constance... It was a church-wide council, started in 1414 and lasted several years. And this council had convened primarily to deal with the very embarrassing situation of having, at this point, three popes who all thought they were pope. So the Council of Constance is going to try to deal with that issue. And it was going to do a few other things. Among the other things it was trying to do was to reassert its own authority, which is probably being questioned with the embarrassing papal issue by cutting off perceived heresies. And one of the greatest of these would be the teachings of Wycliffe. So Huss, of course, is asked to come to the council to answer for himself and to convince and to debate, of course. And that's how Huss takes that invitation. Huss is not in every way naive, but he is promised by the effect effectively the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, one of the most powerful men, and the brother of the king of Bohemia, Sigismund. Sigismund promises John Huss safe conduct to and back from the Council of Constance. If you go, I'll ensure nothing happens to you. And so Huss finally decides, I need to go and defend myself. I'm being misrepresented. This is an opportunity to defend myself. He's not fully naive. He writes his will, thinking things could get sour. But then he goes on the basis of safe conduct, and he comes to Constance in Germany, to the Council of Constance in 1414. Now, what you might suspect is a few months after he arrives, he's thrown in prison. At first, Sigismund was upset about this because he had promised him safe conduct. But the church quickly comes to Sigismund and convinces him Don't feel bad about breaking your word to this man because you do not have to keep your word to a heretic. As we look back, we think to them, truth was not that important. So he's imprisoned. He has a series of trials, but 
he was in this sense naive because he really did think he was coming to Constance to defend himself and hoping even to convince those he was speaking to of the need for reform, the things he was calling for, and some of the teachings of Wycliffe. But the, the leaders in the Council of Constance, the church fathers, they were not interested really in hearing this. They were experiencing a crisis of authority. They were trying to deal with this papal schism. They needed to reassert their authority. And so really this was not a debate. This was a trial. And Huss is being tried for heresy because Huss is opposing the church. Now, Huss could have gotten out of this almost certainly. It seems like those who were leading the interrogations didn't really want to burn John Huss. Perhaps they knew what the consequences would be. He would be a martyr. But they couldn't think of another way to deal with him because here was a man who was what they considered stubborn. Meaning Huss believed something to be true, believed it to be of immense importance, and he refused to compromise. Huss saw this as conviction of the truth. They saw this as stubbornness and pride. That he, this lone bohemian, would think this whole wise and learned council of leaders in the church would all be mistaken while he himself was the only one who was right. In the end, what happens is false witnesses come forward and they accuse John Huss of many articles of heresy that he never actually taught among some things he did. So they tell him, if you will recant all these things you taught, we will let you go, or at least we won't kill you. The problem was, Huss said, if I recant all of these things, there's a large number of them that you guys made up. I literally did not teach any of these things. And if I recant them, I will be suggesting I taught them, which is not true. He was unwilling to compromise. People came to his cell where he was imprisoned and said, listen, don't put yourself under this strict morality. If you will recant, mean it or not, then this will be on the church and on the council. It's on their conscience. It's not on you. You're obeying. But Huss was not willing to compromise the truth. In 1415, one year after the council begins, the teachings of John Wycliffe were officially condemned. His bones were ordered exhumed, removed from their grave, and burnt. And it was only a matter of time before his bohemian follower, Huss, was going to follow. Huss refuses to recant. He will not turn. The few articles that they bring against him that he really did teach, concerning, for example, the nature of the church, he said he was willing to reconsider if they would convince him from the scriptures, which was always the argument of the reformers. The church was not interested in doing this. It had pressing political interests. It didn't have time for it. I think the power of Huss's death is found in the irony of the situation, which was not lost on Bohemia and people in the rest of the world, which was that here was Huss. Huss was truth. He taught truth. He lived truth. He lived an honest and a sincere life. He was a godly man. And he came to testify of what he at least considered to be the truth. Here was the council. And the one perhaps fatal error that John Huss made was that he assumed that Sigismund and the council would value truth as much as he did. But that did not prove to be the case. 
Therefore, Sigismund defaults on his claims, his promise, really, of safe conduct. And on July the 6th, 1415, John Huss is stripped of his official robes, of his office. Then he has a hat put upon his head, a mocking hat, adorned by pictures of devils. They were entrusting his soul to demons as a, not only a heretic, but an arch heretic, a head heretic. And with the truth still firmly in his grasp, to the very end, John Huss was burnt to death. To John Huss, the truth was worth dying for. The truth stands, he had said, and is mighty forever. They tried to crush the truth, but you know, to this day, if you visit the Czech Republic, you may notice the national motto of the Czech Republic. Do you know what it is? Pravda Vitezi, which means truth conquers. Many think that came from John Huss. Even though Huss didn't get to see how truth conquered, it didn't look like truth conquered, just as with Wycliffe. It looked like error conquered. I wish I had time to go into the fallout of the burning of John Huss. But to keep things very brief, the Bohemians were aware of the hypocrisy that had taken place in the Council of Constance. There were already pushes for reform and there were already other political currents outside of Huss or anyone's control there. That when the burning of Huss happened and was reported back in Prague, this led to, I, I suppose, the greatest revolution that Bohemia or the Czech people have ever known. The Czech people revolted against the church in the Roman Empire, and they won. And over a series of five crusades, as the church attempted to retake Bohemia in allegiance, all five crusades failed. I wish I could tell you about it. It's a very exciting story. This, of course, was not what John Huss wanted. He didn't want them to take up the sword. He never argued for that. Nonetheless, it happened. So that by the time we get to Martin Luther next week, 90% of Bohemia was already Protestant before the Protestant Reformation happened. John Wycliffe and John Huss, morning stars of the Reformation, our two pre-reformers, were taken captive by the Word of God. Wycliffe argued that the Word of God is the final authority, and John Huss came alongside to argue that the truth found in the Word of God is strong and lasts forever and prevails and must be held to even to the death. Neither of them would see the outcome of their labors. Both would die in a sort of ignominy, but neither of them would suffer in vain. The embers of their lives and of John Huss's death would move from his funeral pyre, the place of his burning, would first catch in Bohemia and light that dry nation on fire, like dry tinder, and then spread to the rest of the world in various ways. Attempts to renew the church at this point in history from within the church, which is what Wycliffe and Huss wished to do, now was clearly seen as an impossible task. It had been attempted and it could not be done because it would be shut down for political reasons. Europe needed more than a tidying up. She needed the truth that John Huss proclaimed to strike against her in power, to destroy to rebuild, to conquer, and to prevail. Europe needed a rebirth, one might say, 
She needed the word of God to be unchained across the continent and let loose. You might even say that Europe now was clear, needed a reformation. And we'll see that beginning next week. So, I've gone over. If you've got to leave, you can leave. But I hate not to take any questions. So we'll take just a few questions here before we finish. Yes. So then, right, um, from what you're saying about the rise of Protestantism, the impact he had on the common people was strong. Yes. Oh, that's good. So Marilyn's asking, uh, clearly there was an, a, a, some degree of effect on the people as he's preaching, um, but how much of a following did he have during his lifetime? And the answer to that is he actually, the reason that the revolution happened, the Hussite revolution happened, was because unlike John Wycliffe, Wycliffe was teaching these things, but he did not really have English backing. He had some backing, the Lollards, who were taking his messages, but he didn't have backing in high places. And he didn't have broad support in England, but that was not true of Huss. John Huss, perhaps because he's a well-known preacher, he actually had pretty broad support. He had some support in the university. He had um, support from his friends. He had, there were nobles, importantly, there were nobles who were also supporting. That wasn't happening as much with Wycliffe towards the end of his life. But that did happen with us. Yes. Yes, and he, was, he would do that, I think, if he had no support. He would just keep preaching. But um, because of the support he had, it did lead into a successful revolution. So, good question. It would. Yes, Rick. Yes. So Rick mentioned in 1956, the Czechs were the first to revolt against the Soviet Union. Interestingly, and I'll end on this, interestingly, if you go to Prague today, you will find an immense statue of John Huss in Prague, and along the bottom engraved in stone, you will find a quote, great is the truth, and it prevails. And it was actually when Soviet, the Soviet Union, when communism controlled the Czech Republic, those who were opposed to the falsehood they saw in the system and so forth, as a sort of silent protest, Czechs would go and sit at the foot of John Huss's monument, where it said, great is the truth and it will prevail, as a way of siding with Huss and stating that against the communist regime, that the truth will prevail, which is what happened. So, okay, we are finished. Let me pray for us and we'll be done. Lord, I thank you very much for this time of study with uh, John Huss, your servant. And I pray you give us a courage not to be mere spectators of a history that has already happened and that we cannot influence, but to be active participants in the history that is happening now in our faithfulness and adhering to the truth. I pray for help as our culture does not love truth. And I beg that we would not partake of the same errors and falsehood in attempting to win our side of the argument. I pray that we would be those who love the truth in a non-pragmatic way, that we would hold fast to it, whether it helps any particular cause of ours or not, that we would believe that holding to what has actually happened and what is actually true in reality is a value that you have. You are a truth-telling God, and we must be the same. It takes courage, Lord. In the face of opposition, I pray you give us that courage. For the sake of your name and your gospel, amen.